Well, you know, one of the advantages of going through a sermon series in Exodus is that it's familiar to most of us. Even if we've never read the story ourselves from the pages of Scripture, I would assume that most of us know the gist of the story because it's been portrayed a number of times in film. There's obviously the classic The Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille, or maybe you're more familiar with Disney's version of The Prince of Egypt, or maybe even more recent renditions like Ridley Scott's film that came out a few years ago. I think it's called uh, Gods and Kings. Maybe scenes from some of these films have crossed your mind as we've been going through this book, and I think that could be helpful. Same time, though, it could be harmful, because I think these portrayals might help you better see things from Moses' perspective, or maybe Pharaoh's. It might help you better understand their reactions, their motivations throughout the chapters. But I think the problem is that most of these films that we're familiar with, they fail to portray the central characters and the central drama of this book. Because you see, Exodus is not ultimately about a battle between Moses and Pharaoh or the Israelites and the Egyptians. It's ultimately centered on a cosmic conflict between God and false gods, between the God of creation and lords of chaos. And you're not going to get this Godward perspective coming out of Hollywood. You're going to get something more likely from, from man's point of view, which is why I think we tend to, uh, towards a, a moralistic reading of Exodus. We, we, we tend to moralize the story. So we end up reading a, a section like ours, where we're about to enter into the ten plagues, and we end up reading that as a lesson about what happens to those who harden their hearts and refuse to listen to God's Word. And we treat Pharaoh like a negative example of what not to do when God commands you to do something. Or we make this story about Moses and about how to deal with our own insecurities or how to deal with the adversities in our life, the Pharaohs in our life. But you know, instead of automatically, instinctively reading a story like this um, and, and asking ourselves, so what does this have to do with me? What does this story have to do with me? I think our first impulse should be to read this and to ask, what does this story have to tell us about God? Like, when we read this, when we hear this preached, what do we learn about Him? And I want to argue that these next chapters on the ten plagues are actually making a theological point about God. They are not raw displays of power. They are not terrifying flashes of divine anger. The plagues are not just punishments. They're a polemic. They're a polemic against the so-called gods of Egypt. In fact, I think calling them plagues is what is probably confusing the issue for many of us. I know they actually are identified as plagues a couple of times in the subsequent chapters, uh, like in chapter 11, verse 1. But, you know, they're also commonly in these chapters described as signs, signs and wonders, like in our chapter in verse 3. And so, yes, they're known as plagues, but they're also known as signs. So, 
Instead of seeing them merely as plagues with a punitive aspect to them, my point is that we should really see them as proofs, as signs proving something about the God of Israel and about the so-called gods of Egypt. And each of these 10, actually, well, it's actually 11 proofs, they are intentional confrontations with idols that the Egyptians have been putting their hope and security in. And God keeps exposing over and over again their falseness, and he proves his godness. And so if, if, if you just think about how this all could have gone down, it could have gone down very different if God so willed. Like, he could have, in an instant, be done with Uh, this confrontation with Pharaoh. He didn't have to go through all 10 or 11 proofs. If God's sole purpose, if you think about this, if his sole purpose was to free his people, it would have only taken one encounter, right? Just Moses and Aaron, they would have showed up, they would have delivered their message from God, Pharaoh's mind would have been automatically changed. God can do that. He can make that happen. And so the fact that he willed for there to be multiple encounters and multiple proofs tells us that God was not merely focused on delivering his people. He had another purpose in mind. And what I'm going to argue today is that that purpose was to make himself known to the nations, to put on display something about himself, namely his own glory. I think too often we read Exodus, we read a section like this, and the focus is on our deliverance. The focus is on our salvation, and we miss the fact that in the very acts of deliverance, God has his own glory in mind. As he's rescuing us, he's glorifying himself. As he's saving us, he's displaying for us the glory and the power of his name. So friends, I think we need a Godward reorientation of our focus so that we don't just read a text like this and wonder what it has to do with us, but that we ask, what does this text teach us about God? What about the Lord is being put on display here in this passage? That's what I want to answer for us this morning. If you want to pull out your outline in your bulletin, I, I want to show you three things that we can learn about God that that is on display for us about him in this passage. The first thing, the first thing we see on display in in this is verses verses one to seven is how God displays his glory in both acts of salvation and judgment. In this point, I want to make the case that God is committed to glorifying his name by saving and by judging and how both actions happen simultaneously. That is, his acts of deliverance are at the exact same time acts of judgment. As his hand is rescuing, it is simultaneously punishing. And all of this is coordinated to bring him maximum glory. Let me show you this. In our passage, by the time we get to chapter 7, Moses and Aaron have already approached Pharaoh uh, in a previous chapter, already delivered God's message, let his people go. Pharaoh flat out refused. Scripture says it's because his heart was hard. But if we look carefully at our chapter in verse 3, it's hard, 
His heart is hard because God made it that way. God is the one saying in verse 3 that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, we already looked at this. Back in chapter 4, we already considered this theologically challenging concept of God hardening someone's heart. And we're going to be considering it even more in next week's passage because it just keeps coming up in subsequent chapters. But what I want to stress here is that the Bible's insistence um, that though it is clear God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it says it right there, but Scripture also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and we're going to see that in the next few chapters. So both are equally true and compatible statements. God hardened his heart. He hardened his own heart. God is sovereign over how our hearts respond to his word, and yet we're individually responsible for how we respond. They're both true. They're both taught in Scripture, and so they're both compatible. The point, though, what I want you to see here, the focus for, for, in this concept here is simply on the fact that God clearly intended for Pharaoh to not listen. That it's, it's clear that God wanted him to say no. Because if God could harden his heart, well, then he could have easily softened it. But it says it was his intent for Pharaoh not to listen. But why? Why is that? What's the purpose here? Well, look at verse 3 with me again. Verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. So this is, so Pharaoh will not listen, and here's why, here's what's going to happen. I will then lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Okay, so keep, keep your eyes here on these, on these few, few verses, and let me just ask a few questions. So why did God ordain for there to be multiple great acts of judgment versus just delivering his people in one fell swoop by changing Pharaoh's mind. Verse 5 says, so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So he's having multiple acts of judgment so that everyone will recognize who he is, the glory of his name. And notice, notice he says that they shall know my name, in verse 5, when I stretch out my hand. So picture with me God's hand. Picture two sides of his hand. Picture the palm side of his hand bringing out the people of Israel. And at the same time, picture the back side of his hand stretched out against Egypt. And so he's saving with one side and he's judging with the other. And that, he says, is how the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. That is how God displays his glory. That's why I titled this sermon the way I did. God demonstrates his glory in salvation through judgment. In both of those actions, all in one, 
God is glorified. Now, some theologians would argue that that, that God displays his glory and salvation through judgment, that that is what some call the melodic line that you're going to find throughout the entire Bible. Just as every song contains a melodic line that carries throughout the piece and ties every section together, in the same way it's argued that the Bible has a melodic line connecting every single chapter in all 66 books. And that tune is the glory of God. The entire narrative of Scripture sings God's redemption, and in every work of redemption, God is doing three things simultaneously. He is saving, he is judging, and he's glorifying himself. That's the tune that you're going to find throughout the Scriptures. Let, Let me just read to you a few passages. Let me read to you out of Psalm 106. This is a psalm that's related to Exodus. It's chronicling uh, the events of the Exodus. And so by the time you get to verses 7 to 8 of Psalm 106, it gets to a part where the Israelites are arriving at the Red Sea. And here is where they turn on Moses, they turn on God, because they think they've been trapped. And now that they're, they think they're about to be slaughtered by the oncoming Egyptian army. And so listen to what Psalm 106 says. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but instead they rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he, the Lord, saved them For his name's sake, he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. So it was for his name's sake. He saved his people by parting the waters and he judged their adversaries by covering them with the exact same waters. And he did it all so that all might know the mighty power of his name, so that all would recognize that the most powerful military force on the planet is still no match for the great I am. This melodic line continues to play throughout Scripture. Just consider the next major act of salvation and judgment found in the Old Testament. This would be the next great exile of God's people. This is the Babylonian exile. In this instance, it's God's people who are both the object of his judging and his saving. The exile, we're told in Scripture, was judgment for the constant idolatry of the Israelites. But he didn't cut them off entirely. He he saved a remnant, and he returned them to rebuild their land. And listen to why he did all of this. This is out of Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 to 11. Listen to this. For my name's sake, this is the Lord speaking, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? I, I mean, my glory, I will not give to another. It's Isaiah 48, verses 9 to 11. So do you see there just what motivates God? He doesn't want his name profaned among the nations. His people were defaming his name by their idolatry, and so he judged them. 
He refined them, it says, in the furnace of affliction. But in his mercy, he did not snuff them out, no matter how much they deserved it. He didn't cut them off completely. Why? Why did he save them? For my name's sake. For the sake of my praise, for my own sake, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Friends, once you start to hear this melodic line, once you are familiar with this tune in the Old Testament, then you can better understand and you can better appreciate what God does later on in the New Testament and especially what he does in the gospel. It's so important to recognize how the same act of salvation can be an act of judgment. If you can't see that, if you can't hear that, you're not going to understand what God did for us on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sins. That is true. That's the gospel. But the only reason your sins can be forgiven is because on the same cross, Jesus was judged with the judgment you deserve. Think about this. God never just forgives sin. He always judges sin. He doesn't trivialize or minimize sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug and just let bygones be bygones. God only forgives your sins because through Jesus, he bore your sins on the cross. He was judged. Jesus was deemed guilty and he died a sinner's death. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The cross is a symbol of salvation for us only because it was a place of judgment for Christ because of our sins. That's how God is glorified as just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus. Because if God just simply forgave, if he just simply turned a blind eye to the evil that we've done, then yes, someone could accuse him of being unjust, of being partial, of being biased. He's letting the guilty walk. But that's not our God. Our God is glorious. He saves through judgment. He shows mercy and he preserves justice. No one can accuse him of lacking mercy and compassion. And at the same time, no one can accuse him of lacking equity and righteousness. God saves, God judges, and he glorifies himself. That's the melodic line of scripture being strummed so loudly here in our chapter. Until you can hear it, until you can appreciate it, the rest of scripture won't sound familiar. In fact, it might, might sound chaotic, like, like a cacophonous noise. It's just not going to sound pleasant to you. But if you can recognize this melodic line of God glorifying himself in salvation through judgment, then you can be reading about the exodus, you can be reading about the exile or the cross and the resurrection or the second coming and the final judgment, and all of it is going to start to make sense. All of it is going to start to fit together because it's all communicating the same thing, God's Glory is on display as he saves and judges.
In fact, that melodic line is going to make sense of the next part of our story. If we just keep reading on in verses 8 to 13, we see this encounter of Moses and Aaron on one hand and Pharaoh and his court magicians on the other. And so let's go back to our big question I asked in the beginning. What do we learn about God here? Like what aspect of his glory is on display? I think we can answer it like this. This is our second point. Here, God is displaying his authority over the highest earthly power. Let's summarize uh, what happens here. Uh, At this point, Pharaoh's heart is is hard, and he's asking uh, Moses and Aaron to prove themselves by working a miracle. And so Moses is instructed by the Lord to tell Aaron to perform the same sign that he did for the Israelites back in chapter 4, that miracle where the staff is thrown down and it turns into a serpent. So let's pick up. In verse 10, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents." Now, I read a lot this week about whether these magicians actually performed a similar miracle. You know, maybe some argue that it was just like, you know, David Blaine's sleight of hand magic trick going on. Uh, I, I read about how, you know, some snake charmers are known to be able to pinch a particular nerve on the back of a snake's neck and cause it to go stiff and look like a staff. And, you know, these commentators are like, trying to explain that that's what the magicians did. Some of them say that's even what Aaron did. It was just, you know, a particular trick. I, I think all of these naturalistic explanations for what happened are really beside the point. I I, I do think it's clear that it really was Aaron's staff that turned into a snake. And if you find that hard to believe, I mean, you just have to put yourself in the worldview of Scripture, in a theistic perspective where it starts off with a creator God creating everything out of nothing. Come on, this is small potatoes here. But I am open as well to acknowledging that the Egyptian magicians were able to do something very similar. Maybe it's explained by some sort of demonic power empowering what they were able to do. But the whole point of the story is really about what happens next. Look at the rest of verse 12 and see what happens to those staffs of the magicians that become serpents. It says, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. That's the main point here. It's about God's authority over over Pharaoh's. Because in ancient Egypt, serpents were a common symbol representing royal authority. And so having God's serpent swallow Pharaoh's serpent is an open challenge to Pharaoh's authority. It's throwing the gauntlet down. It would be like walking into the Oval Office with a bald eagle in your arms and then strangling it in front of the president, right? Or, or, or like, you know, kicking a beaver in front of the Canadian prime minister, right? It's just, it's an open challenge, not, not just to the man, but, you know, to the entire nation. I, I challenge you. And there's also a bit of foreshadowing going on uh, because the same word for swallow does show up later uh, in chapter 15, in verse 12, where 
It's describing the Egyptian army being swallowed up by the Red Sea. It's the exact same word there. And so I, I think turning this staff into a snake is, is not a parlor trick. It's an indictment against Pharaoh, and really it serves as a warning of judgment to come. Now, church, this passage, this very familiar you know, story that, that we've probably, you know, for, for those of us who have been you know, taught the scriptures as a child, we, you know, we know about this story. This is reminding us ultimately that we worship and we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is not beholden to any earthly powers. The nations rage and the peoples plot in vain while he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Psalm 2, verse 4. Or here's Daniel, chapter 2, verse 21, affirming the Lord's sovereignty over all other sovereigns. It says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Romans 13, verse 1, reinforces that when it says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Well, Proverbs 21, verse 1 states, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You know, friends, I think the Lord in his good providence planned for this passage and for this point to be made this morning, considering the kind of week that we went through as a nation. There's been so much attention focused this week on our nation's capital, on one branch of government, on one judicial bench, on one job opening, and on one confirmation process. And we heard an emotional, incredible allegation as well as an emotional, credible defense. But my focus is not on who's more believable. My focus this morning is on the fact that all of this attention, all of this fighting, all of this divisiveness stems from the outsized importance, the inordinate influence of one particular seat on the Supreme Court. We as a nation have way too much writing on one swing vote. Too much authority has been invested in one person. And that's why we, as Christians, must be reminded that our authority sits in heaven, on an even greater bench, in a much more supreme court, high and exalted above all earthly powers. And so while the nations rage about this issue, agitated and distraught over either losing this nomination or seeing it pushed through, Christians need to be the ones who respond to this moment with concern and consideration, but ultimately with a quiet confidence that our hope and our peace and our joy does not rest in whoever sits on that bench in Washington. Our judge reigns on high, and one day he'll swallow up all competing claims of authority. And so no matter how this whole situation shakes out, as a follower of God, I won't lose an ounce of sleep, and I won't lose my mind on social media, because my God reigns over Pharaoh, my God reigns over the highest 
of earthly powers. So this encounter with Pharaoh is the first of 11 proofs. But as we get into it in verses 14 to 25, we're introduced to the first of what's commonly identified as the 10 plagues. And this is where the Nile is turned into blood. We're just going to look at the first of, of the 10 plagues, and we'll save the rest for next week. But our point, again, has been to emphasize that this should not just be seen as a plague, but as a proof, as a sign displaying something about God. And this is what we see here in this first uh, encounter. This is our third point here. We see God display his control over the very source of life itself. As I mentioned, the central characters in this book are not Moses and Pharaoh, but it's God and the false gods. It's a confrontation between, between the Lord of creation and the lords of chaos. And that battle commences in verse 14 on the banks of the Nile. God tells Me- Moses that Pharaoh's heart is hard. He's not going to let you all go. So go find him uh, in the morning by the Nile. Perhaps he was going for a morning bath. Well, not anymore. Plans are suddenly going to change for him. And so let's pick up in verse 17. This is Moses Speaking to Pharaoh, the very words of God. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Now again, you know, a lot has been written trying to offer naturalistic explanations for what's happening here. Uh, some point out that in Hebrew, the word blood uh, could just be referring to the color, like blood red. And so it could be referring to a natural and, and not uncommon phenomenon that is, does occur in the Nile, where in certain areas, an overabundance of reddish sediment collects and it produces a very inhospitable environment where a particular toxic algae begins to grow, killing all of the fish life and making the water undrinkable and unusable. But you know, even if that, 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 that's what happened, even if there is a naturalistic explanation, again, it's beside the point. The whole point is that this phenomenon occurred at the command of God. And this was no just natural coincidence. God told Moses to strike the Nile with his staff, and that very moment, this phenomenon occurred. It's still an act of God. If God were to cause an earthquake, it's not any less a divine act just because earthquakes, earthquakes naturally occur. The point is that God did this, and he did it with a point in mind. And that point is clearly spelled out for us in, verses, in verse 17. Again, he says, it's about his glory. It's to glorify himself. By this you shall know, I am Yahweh, the Lord. So this is a showdown between the one true God of creation and the false gods of Egypt. Because to the ancient Egyptians, the Nile was more than just a river. It was more than just a source for fish and water. Their lives, their livelihoods were utterly dependent upon the Nile. And so that river itself began to be worshipped and revered as a god, as one who holds power over the very source of life for this community. So think about the message that God is sending to, Mo, uh, to Pharaoh and to the rest of the Egyptians. 
You worship the Nile? You think it's the source of life? Well, I'm going to strike it and it's going to bleed. Everything inside the Nile will die and it will not be able to sustain your lives, much less your livelihoods. This is God confronting the idols of a society, challenging the false gods in which people have assigned so much power, so much influence, so much control. God is exposing their emptiness. He is exposing their powerlessness, their inability to keep their promises to you. I I hope you're starting to see how this, you know, quote-unquote plague is actually grace to us. It is out of the kindness of his mercy that he shows people the emptiness of their idols and proves to us his own weightiness, his own glory. This is why I, I prefer to call them proofs than just simply plagues. He is proving something to us about the emptiness of the things we worship and the weightiness of himself. Now, if I had to evaluate our society today, I would say that the Nile that we're worshiping and revering is definitely digital. We've assigned way too much power to technology, to the accessibility of information, to the speed of communication. So much of our lives and livelihood revolve around a powerful device that fits in our pockets and around the information and the ease of communication that that thing provides. Now, just like the Nile, technology can be a good thing. It can contribute to human flourishing. But just like the Nile, once a people begin to worship and revere a good thing, it easily devolves into a godlike thing, an idol. And for many of us, our lives revolve around our phones or around our social media presence or around the entertainment we're streaming onto our devices. And I think God is performing the same kind of sign today, trying to expose the emptiness of our idols, demonstrating that that life, a truly fulfilled life, is not going to come from that device or from anything or anyone on the other end of it. It's the lesson he was trying to teach the ancient Egyptians, that true life is not coming from the Nile. There's only one true source of life. So you could have the world, like the Egyptians can have everything that streams from the Nile, and you can have everything that streams from the cloud, but without God, you have nothing. The Lord wants to use the miracle on the Nile to prove that point, but there's an even greater miracle in the pages of Scripture making that exact same point, an even clearer sign of God's control over life itself. It's the sign of the empty tomb. It's the miracle of the resurrection. Because if Jesus is still alive today, then he has demonstrated mastery over life itself. We spend so much of our days seeking to enhance our lives, to fulfill it, to preserve it, to prolong it, but it's all in vain if we do not have the risen Lord in our lives. So don't don't be like the Egyptians at the end of this chapter, still desperately digging in the ground for Nile water, oblivious to the whole point of this miracle performed before them, this proof 
Acknowledge instead the glory and the power of this God and receive his son, Jesus. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in him shall never die. Father, I thank you for this proof, proof found in the pages of Scripture of your glory, proof of your power, proof of your control and authority. Lord, you are the true God and the false gods that we spend our days chasing after. They are empty and nothing compared to you. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your mercy to us. And I pray, Lord, that you will awaken us and that you will open up our eyes to more clearly see you in the fullness of your glory, in the person of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray.